Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On December 10th, 1920, a farmer, Edward McKeown, stood before the winter assizes in Green Street Courthouse in Dublin, facing an egregious charge, that of killing his neighbour, Patrick Rochford. The details of the case had an air of familiarity for most communities in Ireland. The two farmers had long hated each other, and in September 1920, their feud had turned from angry words to violent deeds in a misunderstanding over land. The violence erupted after Edward McKeown had rented a field at Ballygoran, County Louth to another farmer in the locality. Then, unbeknownst to him, this man had in turn rented the same field to Patrick Rochford. When Edward McKeown saw Rochford, a man he had disliked for years, working his land, he was infuriated and went to confront his neighbour. Whatever words were said between them was not recorded, but Rochford flew into a rage and attacked Edward McKeown with a sickle. McKeown, however, was carrying a pitchfork and an almost medieval duel between the two farmers began. When Rochford lunged at his neighbour with the sickle, McKeown struck back with the pitchfork, delivering what proved to be a fatal blow. Given there were several witnesses present, McKeown couldn't deny his involvement. However, when the case went before the courts, he pleaded not guilty to the charge of manslaughter, claiming he had acted in self-defence. At the winter assizes in Dublin, the jury agreed and McKeown was released. Now, cases of this nature, rooted in disputes over land, were not unusual. Indeed, they had been a scourge of rural Ireland for decades. However, in December 1920, the presiding judge at the assizes, the 71-year-old Justice John Gordon, may have felt slightly nostalgic for better days as he heard the details of Patrick Rochford's violent death. The days when a rural feud like this was the most serious incident before the courts seemed like a faint echo of a simpler time. In December 1920, when John Gordon's court had opened, it revealed not only a surge in incidents reported to the police, but the fact that the entire legal system in Ireland was teetering on the verge of collapse amidst the War of Independence. 
Indeed, while the opening weeks of December offered nothing as sensational or newsworthy as Bloody Sunday or Kilmichael, a relatively short speech by John Gordon at the opening of the Dublin Assizes were in their own way a more damning indictment of the wider situation in Ireland. He revealed the full impact the war was having beyond spectacular ambushes and raids and how these affected towns and communities across Ireland. The picture that emerged when he reported the full catalogue of incidents reported to the police in the previous six months revealed a country in the grip of a revolution where the authorities had lost control. Gordon had said, There were nearly 3,700 cases reported against 1,100 for the corresponding period last year, or an increase of 2,600. That seems bad enough, but when you analyse the figures, the result is even more serious. There were 120 murders against 10. 167 attempts to murder against 12, 70 malicious woundings as against 29, robberies with violence, 360 as against 20. The list went on, burglaries, incendiary fires, destruction of property, and perhaps the most telling of all, the 810 thefts of weapons compared to the 68 in the same period in 1919. While Edward McKeown's case of manslaughter would once have been the most serious incident, it almost seemed incidental in this context. As Justice Gordon had shocked his court in Dublin, his colleague Justice Jonathan Pym, overseeing the assizes being held in Belfast at the same time, presented a similar picture there, albeit one that reflected the sectarian nature of the war in the northeast. Of the 489 cases that were related to incidents in Belfast, 410 had arisen from the sectarian riots that had rocked the city in the late summer and sporadically ever since. Now stark as this picture was, both judges, Jonathan Pym in Belfast and John Gordon in Dublin, were only too well aware this didn't even capture the full extent of the war. It was merely the tip of the iceberg, given the vast majority of the population were refusing to report crimes because they were either boycotting the British authorities or fearful of what might happen if they didn't. Nevertheless, this catalogue of incidents was damning. British rule in Ireland appeared to be hanging by a thread as its institutions were collapsing. From a British perspective, given it followed on the heels of Bloody Sunday and Kilmichael, it was yet another indictment of the government's handling of the war. However, as that December wore on, the British government were by no means despondent. If anything, they were quite the opposite. A new and ultimately very dangerous understanding and analysis of the war in Ireland was beginning to take hold in the corridors of power in London. While some in Ireland may have hoped that the violence that rocked the island in November might have symbolised the darkest hour before a new dawn, events in London indicated that 1921 could only hurl a dramatic escalation in the conflict. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is the War of Independence Part 21, Peace and Partition. This episode takes us through a critical juncture in the war, December 1920. In the aftermath of the sensational IRA operations on Bloody Sunday and a week later at Kilmichael, it seemed obvious to all that the conflict was going to escalate in 1921. But then, somewhat surprisingly, peace talks began in December. However, as we will see, these had the most unpredictable of outcomes. Meanwhile, 
As these talks continued, the government finalised what would be the most far-reaching legislation passed in Ireland in a century, the Better Governance of Ireland Bill. We will see how this partitioned the island, leaving a legacy that is still being played out today. After the last episode in the War of Independence series, I released a short show to launch the second Irish History Summit, which is coming in January 2022. It's shaping up really well. Last year, we organised the first summit to help students prepare for the Leaving Cert History exams. And this year, we're expanding. We have a great day of talks lined up based on an analysis of previous year's exams to help students prepare for the Leaving Cert History as best as possible. While it's focused on students, lots of you have been asking me since I released that last show if anyone can attend. The answer is yes. It'll be broadcast online from the National Museum of Ireland and it's open to anyone. But it is a must for Leaving Cert History students. The lineup is really great. Just to pick out a few highlights of talks that I'm looking forward to. So we have the journalist and historian Leo Enright talking about the moon landing. Liz Gillis on the Civil War. Dr Brian Hanley from Trinity College Dublin on the threat to the Irish state before World War II. Dr Dieter Reinisch from the University of Vienna on how the Nazis used terror to maintain their rule. And Dr Sarah Ann Buckley from NUI Galway on whether post-independence Ireland was a Catholic and Gaelic country as many revolutionaries wanted it to be. Now you'll be able to enjoy these talks, as I said, from the comfort of your own home. It's going to be broadcast live online on Saturday, January the 15th. Tickets are on sale now and we have early bird offers that run out at the end of the month. So you can get your tickets today at irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. That's irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. Now, while I said it's open to everyone, the focus is obviously Leaving Cert History students. So we also have a session from Patrick Hickey, who's one of Ireland's most experienced history examiners, and he'll be explaining the do's and don'ts for students so they can get the most from the exams. We also have a competition exclusively for students. So each year, Leaving Cert History students put huge energy and effort into their RSRs, research study reports on a topic from history. Now, these are often really excellent. So we want to showcase one of these next year. So I'll be interviewing one student based on their RSR for a podcast. Now, this competition is open to all student attendees of the summit. You can find full details and tickets at irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. That's irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. Now to the show. Additional research is by Sam McGrath. Sound by Jason Looney. And additional narrations are from Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. There was no question that November 1920 had not gone according to plan for the British government. Indeed, their actions served as a stark warning to politicians on the dangers of making bold promises. As we saw in recent episodes, on November 9th, the Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, had stated publicly he had murder on the run in Ireland, indicating victory was on hand. However, this was followed by an explosion of violence in Ireland as the IRA demonstrated they were more than able to fight on. They had not only dealt the Crown forces significant blows in Dublin on Bloody Sunday and then Cork at Kilmichael, but they had also carried out a major attack in England as well. This surge in violence culminated with the introduction of martial law across the southwest of Ireland on December the 10th. However, while this in many ways represented a U-turn on the part of the government and indicated things were not going well in Ireland, on that same day, one of the most senior government politicians was again predicting 
that the war was nearing a conclusion. In 1920, Andrew Bonner Law was leader of the Conservatives, the larger of the two parties in government, a position that made him the de facto Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. On the night of December 10th, as martial law was being declared in parts of Ireland, he travelled to his native Scotland to address a meeting of the Scottish Unionist Association in the Usher Hall in central Edinburgh. Bonner Law, a staunch supporter of Irish unionism, threw caution to the wind and predicted that the British government would win the war in Ireland. While he opened with the oft-used platitudes about desiring peace, he went on to say, Now I tell you this in confidence that I am right. The position in Ireland is changed, and I tell you terror is broken, and we'll make sure it remains broken and disappears from Ireland. Now recent events in Ireland did appear to question such supreme confidence in victory, but Bonner Law was not the only one in government to share such an optimistic assessment of the situation in Ireland. While martial law came into effect across the southwest on that same day, his confidence was rooted in recent developments in London. In recent weeks, legislation called the Government of Ireland Act, which had a major impact on the war in the northeast of Ireland, had passed through the House of Commons. Then, in the first week of December, peace talks, which had begun nine days earlier, floundered giving Bonner Law and his government colleagues reason to believe the IRA and the wider Republican movement were in fact on the verge of collapse. This nurtured an increasingly aggressive attitude to the conflict in London. In December 1920, the British Parliament was in the final stages of passing legislation called the Better Governance of Ireland Act. Often simply referred to as the Government of Ireland Act, it was claimed that this was in essence a measure to appease Irish nationalists, but in reality it served a very different purpose. Indeed, this was arguably the most far-reaching measure passed by any British government since the Act of Union in 1800, and it not only had an impact over the nature and trajectory of the war in 1920, but had far-reaching consequences that affect Ireland right up to the present day. The details of the legislation have already been covered in episode 10, but given they had such profound consequences both at the time and since then, it's worth recapping them quickly. So under the provisions of the Government of Ireland Act, the British government were supposedly granting increased autonomy for Ireland, the much-vaunted home rule that nationalists had demanded in one form or another through most of the 19th century. However, given the details of the final legislation that passed through Parliament, it was clear the bill served very different purposes than appeasing nationalists. Rather than creating just one parliament in Dublin, as nationalists had always called for, the Government of Ireland Act created two separate and distinct jurisdictions on the island of Ireland. One parliament would sit in Belfast with jurisdiction over the six northeastern counties, while the other was to convene in Dublin and govern the rest of the island. The reactions to this bill surprised many onlookers who were not that familiar with recent Irish politics in 1920. Despite having long called for home rule, Irish nationalists, both radical and moderate, immediately rejected the bill because it partitioned Ireland. Meanwhile, unionists, despite long being opposed to home rule, came to view this specific bill as having potential benefits. They realised if it was modified correctly, it could come to serve as a safeguard for their interests. If they could establish a parliament in Belfast, they would, after all, be masters of their own destiny. No British government or potential Irish Republic down the line could separate them from Britain. 
Therefore, by 1920, their aim was to partition Ireland permanently, carving out a jurisdiction where not only Unionists, but Protestant Unionists, would dominate. They were quite explicit about this in their demands. H.L. Garrett of the Ulster Unionist Council informed the Secretary for Ireland, Harmer Greenwood, at a meeting in the autumn of 1920. The time has come when Belfast and the north of Ireland should not be associated with the rest of Ireland in any sort of way. To this end, they threatened to block the entire Government of Ireland bill if measures to make partition a permanent state of affairs were not included. Therefore, through 1920, their extensive allies and supporters in government began to rework early drafts of the bill. Boundaries were redrawn to ensure Catholics and nationalists would be in a minority in this jurisdiction around Belfast. The initial plan had been to include all nine Ulster counties, but under lobbying from Unionists, the counties of Monaghan, Cavan and Donegal, all of which had large Catholic populations, were removed. Now, This cemented Unionist dominance in the region. Next, they lobbied to have connections between the two proposed jurisdictions in Belfast and Dublin removed. This was to ensure that partition of Ireland was on a more permanent footing. For example, initial drafts of the bill had left the same judicial system in place across the entire island. This was, however, now replaced by two separate courts systems. While these measures were agreed as early as the spring of 1920, Unionists had remained fearful that the government might still amend the legislation as part of negotiations with the Republican movement. However, by November, the Act finally passed through the House of Commons and by early December, Unionists could start to breathe easily. While the bill still had to be debated by the upper chamber, the House of Lords, this ultimately had little power to affect any substantial change and it passed without incident in mid-December. In terms of the war in the North East, and indeed in terms of daily life in the region, it was an unmitigated disaster. The Government of Ireland Act created a sectarian jurisdiction, ruled over by extremists such as Edward Carson and James Craig, and could only lead to a perpetuation of violence. These were, after all, the same men who had encouraged and orchestrated the violence that had swept through Belfast in the summer of 1920, for example. They viewed Catholics as disloyal and were intent that they would be removed from any position of influence in the region. Meanwhile, the Government of Ireland Act also had an impact on the rest of Ireland, although in a very different way. The other parliament supposed to convene in Dublin clearly was never going to meet. Irish Republicans were far and away the most popular movement across the south and west of Ireland and they would never accept the Dublin Parliament given they had already established their own independent parliament, the Doyle. However, this was a surprise to no one at the time. The British government were well aware of this, but had ulterior motives in passing the bill regardless. Indeed, as early as March 1920, while the details were still being finalised, the Irish Unionist Lord Oren Moore recorded a conversation he had with Lord Birkenhead, one of the architects of the bill, in reference to the Dublin Parliament. It was clear from what he told Oren Moore, that Birkenhead knew it would never meet, as Lord Oren Moore recorded in his diary. If Sinn Féin declared definitely against it, he could not see the good of forcing it upon them against their wishes. However, Birkenhead revealed that his colleagues in government wanted to pass the legislation for propaganda value. Oren Moore recorded in his diary, The government was bound to do something to show America they were trying to satisfy the Irish opinion. After its passage in December, the government could now claim that they had passed a Home Rule Bill, what nationalists in Ireland had always wanted. Furthermore, even Unionists had accepted it. 
For those unfamiliar with recent Irish history and the intricacies of the bill, say for example international audiences, it now seemed, or certainly it allowed the British government to portray Irish nationalists of all stripes as being unreasonable and impossible to appease. This was the perfect justification for continuing aggression in Ireland. And as chance would have it, just after this bill passed, peace talks, which had enjoyed a promising start in early December, ended in disaster. Indeed, they could scarcely have gone any worse, and if anything, led to an escalation of the war. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the early days of December 1920, despite the fact that newspapers were filled with speculation about the introduction of martial law and spiraling violence, stories began to emerge of potential peace talks. By December the 5th, Lloyd George had stated in the press that he was open to talks and this was confirmed again in the House of Commons the following day when he was pressed on the matter and he replied, I have no statement to make on the subject beyond repeating the willingness of the government to explore every avenue which might lead to a real and lasting settlement with Ireland. Predictably, unionists in Parliament were extremely fearful about what peace talks could mean for the Government of Ireland bill then in its final stages. The unionist Baron Rathmore asked Lloyd George, In order to clear up misapprehensions, may I ask whether the Government have or have not any alternative with regard to Irish policy from that already sanctioned by this House in the Government of Ireland bill? Now such fears were completely misguided. While unionists had plenty of support within cabinet and the backbenches who would protect their interests at all costs, the peace talks could scarcely have gone any worse. This peace initiative had begun days earlier with the arrival of the Catholic Archbishop of Perth, Patrick Clune in London. Clune was a curious figure politically. A native of County Clare, he had served as Chaplain General to the Australian Imperial Forces in World War I and had supported conscription of Australians in 1917. So, from a British government perspective, he was a trustworthy figure. However, he had returned to Ireland in 1920 and had been shocked by the actions of the Black and Tans and the Crown forces. This became deeply personal in November when his nephew Connor, the same Connor Clune we met in episode 19, was executed alongside Dick McKee and Pather Clancy in Dublin Castle on the night of Bloody Sunday. Leaving Ireland a few days later for Rome, he travelled by way of London, where he was urged by moderate Irish nationalist politicians in the city to meet with Lloyd George and explain 
what he had seen and experienced in Ireland. At this meeting, held on December the 1st, Lloyd George asked Clune if he would act as an intermediary between the British government and the Republican movement in Dublin. The Archbishop agreed, and after meeting Lloyd George, he sought out Arthur O'Brien, the Republican representative in London, who in turn established contact with Republican leaders in Dublin. While this was by no means the first attempt to establish a truce in the following days, it was the first one to gain momentum. In Dublin, Clune first met with Arthur Griffith. Griffith had taken over as acting president of Sinn Féin since Eamon de Valera had left for the USA in 1919. However, he had been arrested after Bloody Sunday, so these talks took place in the confines of Mountjoy Jail. More importantly, he also held secret talks with Michael Collins. He also met with Mark Sturgis, John Anderson and Andrew Cope, the three most important British officials in Dublin Castle. Now, given the context, these talks were, after all, taking place in the aftermath of the most bitter fighting. They went surprisingly well, and Clune had laid the basis to proceed further. However, around December 4th, things started to get increasingly complicated and confusing. That day, December 4th, saw Galway County Council, then under the control of Sinn Féin, issue an appeal for peace, completely independent of these talks. Then, on December the 5th, Father Michael O'Flanagan, who had replaced Arthur Griffith as acting president of Sinn Féin on his arrest, made a far more serious and calamitous intervention when he contacted Lloyd George directly through a telegram saying, You state that you are willing to make peace at once without waiting for Christmas. Ireland is also waiting. What first step do you propose? He also published this telegram in the press. This was done without consultation with any other Republican political leader or the leadership of the IRA, and was again happening alongside, but independent of, Archbishop Clune's efforts. Father O'Flanagan's solo run had far-reaching consequences. While Michael Collins would respond by making it clear that O'Flanagan was not speaking on behalf of the wider movement, in London, the British cabinet saw it as a sign of weakness. O'Flanagan's intervention had followed on from a similar solo run by Roger Sweetman, a Sinn Féin Member of Parliament, who a week earlier had publicly distanced himself from the Bloody Sunday killings of intelligence officers and had then called for a peace conference in an article published in several newspapers. These interventions, but Flanagan's in particular, created the impression that the Republican movement was internally divided and really falling apart and lacked coherency. Harmer Greenwood, the Secretary of State for Ireland, privately told Lloyd George, The Sinn Féin cause and organisation is breaking up. And we can, in due course, and on our own, and fair terms, settle this Irish question for good. On December the 7th, Greenwood, a hardliner in his outlook, made a speech in the House of Commons that indicated the government's position was hardening. Nobody is more anxious than the Chief Secretary and His Majesty's government for peace. But before we have peace, murders must cease, murderers must be tried, and the arms must be surrendered. What he was effectively saying here was that the IRA would have to surrender arms before peace talks could begin. Privately, Greenwood had in fact threatened to resign if this was not part of the terms. When Lloyd George met Archbishop Clune, who returned to London for another meeting on December the 8th, he now voiced this new condition. The British government were demanding that the IRA surrender weapons before direct talks could begin. Such terms were absurd. Handing over weapons in such circumstances represented a surrender, not peace talks. Clune immediately told Lloyd George as much, 
but the British government had interpreted the course of the events in recent days as evidence that they were fighting an enemy that was already on the verge of collapse. The optimistic mood that had prevailed in early December quickly soured. While Lloyd George was setting out these terms to Clune, it appears the military were briefing the press in ominous terms. The Dublin Evening News was reporting on December the 9th that not only were talks off, but that the Crown forces in Ireland were ready to push ahead with the war. The lobby correspondent of the London Daily Express says that the military authorities in Ireland believe that they have the situation well in hand and that their view apparently is that this is not a time for white flags. It was on the following night in Edinburgh that Boner Law made his speech that terror was broken in Ireland. He even went on to say that he would put Republican leaders on trial. While discussions between Clune and various figures on both sides continued, the process was quickly losing momentum and, if anything, was leading events in the wrong direction. In Dublin, IRA leaders were increasingly suspicious. Michael Collins, in a letter to Arthur Griffith, for example, voiced his concern that Clune was naive and overly trusting. There is far too much a tendency to believe that Lloyd George is wishful for peace and it is only his own wild men prevent him from accomplishing his desires. I am not convinced that he is a peacemaker. As it disintegrated, the entire process ended in fiasco. The Republican movement in Ireland came away even more suspicious of Lloyd George, if that was possible. While attempts at establishing peace talks were continuously worked at, getting them off the ground in the aftermath of this failure would be harder than ever. Meanwhile, from a British perspective, the incoherent approach by certain Irish Republicans, particularly Father Michael O'Flanagan, gave the impression the IRA were desperate for peace and the Republican leadership was breaking up. This gave the Hawks and the British Army and the Cabinet grounds to advocate a new, more aggressive strategy. As Christmas approached, news filtering back from Ireland certainly indicated an escalation in the war was on the cards rather than any potential truce or peace talks. On December 21st, 1920, Harmer Greenwood, the Chief Secretary from Ireland, yet again stood before the dispatch box in the House of Commons to field more questions about Ireland. Jeremiah McVeigh, one of the six Irish Nationalist MPs still in the Parliament, directed a question to Greenwood, asking him if it was true that Crown forces were now using prisoners as human shields. Is it a fact that the military authorities in Ireland have decided on carrying Sinn Féin leaders in lorries to prevent attacks on the lorries? And is the Chief Secretary aware that during the South African War, the Prime Minister denounced this practice as barbarous and unchristian. On previous occasions, Greenwood had danced around questions such as this about atrocities in Ireland. On this occasion, there was no whataboutery. Instead, he baldly stated, That is the policy in certain parts of Ireland. There was no question a new, more hardline attitude was taking hold in the highest offices in London. In January 1921, Andrew Bornerlaw outlined his understanding of the situation in Ireland to the government. Thomas Jones, the Deputy Secretary to the Cabinet, later remembered Boner Law's increasingly extremist and racialized understanding of the war. Coercion was the only policy and in the past it had been followed by a period of quiet for about 10 years. That is the most we could have hoped for from the present repressions and that he had come to the simple conclusion that the Irish were an inferior race. The two sides, it seemed, were further apart than ever. This set the stage for a dramatic increase in violence in 1921. Indeed, more people would be killed in the following six months than had been killed in the entire war to date. To set the stage for this crucial stage of the conflict, 
The next episode is going to look at both sides as they were shaping up in January 1921. Because by this point, the Irish War of Independence has been going on for two years and both the Republican movement and the Crown forces were very different than they had been back in 1919. In this episode, we'll get the views of some of Britain's most famous military leaders of the 20th century who were serving in Ireland at the time, Bernard Montgomery and Arthur Percival. We'll also hear from Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera, who finally re-enters the story. These two men and the growing tensions between them represented both the Republican movement's greatest strengths and weaknesses in the coming months. That's all coming in the next episode. Don't forget to check out Irish History Summit eventbrite.ie that's irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie to get your tickets for the Irish History Summit in 2022 until next time slon